Hello again. Uh, my name is Adam Elwanger. This is episode 10 of Wither the Luniversity, the podcast of the Peerless Review. And I'm very excited about my guest today. Uh, he is professor of psychology at Northwestern University in Illinois. Uh, professor J. Michael Bailey is with me. Um, he is an expert on sexual orientation and gender nonconformity. Um, he's also the author of one of the best books I've read um, on gender identity. I have it right here. It is oh, it's looking weird. The Man Who Would Be Queen. Um, and uh, this book right now, and, and you can get a copy on Kindle, um, but the, the physical copy is out of print right now. But Joseph Henry Press uh, has a free PDF that you could download and read, uh, which is associated with the National Academy of Sciences. And in the show notes to this episode, we'll put a link to that. Um, in addition, Professor Bailey is in the middle of a study right now, studying uh, perceptions, gender identity uh, with um, gender dysphoric youth and their parents, along with Lisa Lippman and Ken Zucker. That study promises to be a groundbreaking one. So today we will talk a little bit about um, the book, a little bit about uh, gender politics, and certainly about um, the miserable state of the university. Professor Bailey, welcome. Thank you for coming on. Uh, thanks, Adam. And we'll be calling each other by our first names, I hope. Yes. Uh, and uh, I've really enjoyed, uh, I think I've listened to all your episodes so far, and I've enjoyed them. I'm privileged that you uh, invited me. Well, thanks very much. So, the, as you know, the first thing I ask everybody is, how'd you get into psychology? Why psychology? Tell us the origin story of your sort of scholarly career. Okay. So, uh, I, uh, in the second half of the 70s, I was in college at Washington University in St. Louis. I was a math major. Uh, and uh, while taking math courses, I noticed two things that made me less enthusiastic. First, um, math was very abstract, and I, I don't know. I just I just felt like it wasn't addressing things that I cared much about. Uh, and second, at that time, Washington University uh, had uh, the best mathematicians in the country as students. Uh, it offered them, it recruited them specifically. I'm serious, they won the Putnam exam, or they were in the top finisher of the Putnam exam every year I was there. Wow. And these people, I was not in their league not close. Uh, and uh, I, I think I was my junior year, I took a course that sounded interesting to me on, it was a history course called The History of Freudian Thought mm. by Gerald Eisenberg, uh, who's a historian. Uh, and I was just, uh, I was hooked uh, by Freud. Freud you know, got the unconscious, sexual motivation, repression, okay. all that stuff. Uh, and uh, 
I learned that, um, you know, there were ways to study this and psychology was my best bet, not wanting to go to med school and become a psychiatrist. Uh, I went to the University of Texas at Austin uh, for my PhD and immediately the first semester uh, I fell out of love with Freud because um, Freud was uh, a terrible scientist, a terrible thinker. He was, uh, you know, he was obviously uh, influential. He obviously drew a crowd. <laughs> but, In a lot of ways, he seems to be a storyteller. More than, more than he was a, a storyteller and a very meandering uh, storyteller that that didn't really make a lot of sense. Also, the people who were really into Freud at my uh, university, they were mainly teaching the practice relevant courses like how to do therapy and so on. They were they were not impressive thinkers. Hmm. Uh, and uh, instead, at my university. Uh, at that time, the Department of Psychology uh, was very strong uh, in the field of behavior genetics, uh, which is one of the things I studied. Uh, and uh, also, I, my uh, advisor, Lee Willerman, uh, who was a wonderful man, uh, God rest his soul, uh, he uh, taught a graduate course in human sexuality. And uh, during that course, um, I was, you know, it's time for me to choose a dissertation topic. And there was a unit uh, about uh, sexual orientation and a uh, paper came out in science about uh, biological theory of male homosexuality. And uh, he suggested that maybe we could uh, follow that theory up uh, uh, for my dissertation, and it made sense, and, and that's what I did. And uh, I really uh, enjoyed uh, working with uh, gay and lesbian people uh, more than I liked had liked working with mentally ill people. Mm. Uh, and also, there were a lot of uh, really interesting open questions. This was, again, in the late 80s uh, when I was doing this work, uh, and um, I, uh, that's what got me hired, and I've uh, stayed uh, more or less in that uh, general domain, uh, though uh, sexual orientation uh, overlaps some with uh, transsexualism, which is what we used to call it. Yes. Uh, and I have also become interested in uh, paraphilias. Paraphilias is the scientific current uh, terminology for what used to be called perversions. Uh, and one kind of transsexualism uh, is uh, caused in part by paraphilia. But I, I'm also interested in other controversial paraphilia related topics such as pedophilia, which is, uh, you know, you are interested, we can talk about that kind of thing too. 
So uh, that's I'll, I'll pause. That, that's that. <laughs> that's fascinating. I'll, I'll, uh, a fun fact is that uh, as a as a high school student, I got to participate in a mentorship program where we could pick a field and they'd set us up with a professional in that field who we could kind of study with um, for a semester. And I chose a clinical psychologist. And so when I came to college, I thought that that was what I was going to do. Um, and I, I declared my major and there was this program. I don't know if uh, professionals in your discipline use it anymore, but it was called SPSS. Um, and at that point, right, uh, that was when they hit me with the math and this program. And I said, this is not for me. <laughs> I switched uh, I switched to English. Um, so let's talk about the book. The, the, the most interesting thing about the book in some ways to me is that this was published in 2003 which is light years ago in terms of sexual politics um, and, and where we are in the United States now. And one of the things that uh, I think just makes the book really fantastic is that um, you treat the subjects of your study, um, uh, transgendered people, um, gay and lesbian people, you treat them with a lot of compassion, right? And, and it, it's clear that you, um, that you have a a respect for the objects of your study and yet you also treat the topic of transgenderism with a a healthy dose of skepticism you seem to be um also uh now i don't think that the narratives about transgenderism that we have today were maybe quite as strong back then but you seem willing to explore sort of social dynamics of this as well as biological dynamics of it and everything in between and you also i think have the courage in the book to to acknowledge the questions on which we simply don't have an answer yet um so i guess maybe my first thing and this probably is a is a question that um bears on on my research um but also just uh in the humanities in general um if we sort of generally associate sort of sexual identitarianism um with the left, with with progressive leftism, which I think uh, it, at this point those things are twisted up. Which is not to say that everybody who who sort of bases their identity off of sexual identity or these kinds of things is necessarily a Democrat or a leftist. But it seems to me that um, the vanguard of the sexual identity movement is very much sort of um, aligned with science um, and perhaps against religion. Um, the reason that this really interests me is because the, the standard statement of transgendered identity is, yes, on the outside, I look like this, but on the inside, right, the real me is this other sex or gender. And to me, when I hear that statement, it smacks very much to me of the idea of the soul. And so it's almost like um, uh, sort of um, sexual identitarians and, and, and leftists have kind of in a backwards way rediscovered the concept of the soul and despite the fact that they have these sort of biological scientific pretenses kind of rely on that concept of the inner self to sort of validate this identity and I wonder um, you know in, in that concept of the inner self, how as a, a social scientist, do you reckon with such an ethereal idea 
as an inner self, or if we would go so far, a soul. Well, um, so first of all, the uh, one of the early uh, activists uh, was a more of a gay activist, though this was long so long ago that this was before anything like transsexualism was thought of. His name was uh, Carl Ulrich. Uh, he uh, talked about uh, having the soul of a woman, uh, though he uh, identified more as a, as a gay man. I don't think they had the word gay to describe that, but he wasn't uh, wanting to change into a woman. Uh, but uh, it's long been known that Gay men also uh, are, uh, on average, uh, more feminine than heterosexual men. Um, so, you know, I, uh, I'm, a, I'm an atheist, uh, not by choice. I can't help but be an atheist. Uh, it's just what I believe, and I don't believe in anything like a soul. Uh, that said, you know, it isn't problematic for me to believe that uh, people can have uh, internal feelings that uh, differ from uh, their external presentation if, you know, they're uh, forced <laughs> By circumstance, say, uh, to present a certain way, you know, a lot, you know, the whole theme of your podcast. There, there are probably a lot of academics uh, who have the souls of reasonable people, uh, uh, despite uh, you know what they might say or seem to believe. So you've said um, something that's very interesting that that despite sort of not believing in a soul you you are saying that there is such a thing as interior phenomena um and it seems to me in your book that you and correct me if i'm wrong but it seems that the you point towards the formation of that inner self as a product of both nature and nurture of biology and uh things like experiences um is that right that you think that that takes shape as a mix of those two forces so I think that we need to take, you know, two or three minutes to get more specific about what I wrote about in the book. And so uh, anybody who is sufficiently interested uh, can Google the man who would be queen and, and you will find out that there was uh, starting in 2003 and, and uh, going on for several years a very intense controversy that was caused by uh, some transsexual activists who despised uh, the book uh, because they despised uh, some ideas, and in particular one idea that I wrote about in the book. The autogynophilic identity? Yeah, yeah. So uh, the third section of the... So the, the book has three sections. The first is about... Uh, boys who want to be girls 
The second is about gay men and the way they're feminine and the way they're masculine. And the third is about male to female transsexuals and um, uh, was based on, the science was based on Ray Blanchard, who is the person who came up with this uh, taxonomy of uh, the two types, which I'll explicate in a moment, of uh, male to female transsexuals. Uh, the um, I was lucky enough to meet uh, a trans woman uh, whose uh, actual name is Angelica Celtica uh, because she's out uh, in the book. I called her Cher because she liked Cher. Uh, and we were friends uh, until the book controversy and w at which point she turned on me and I think that she did that uh, on the behest of um, uh, a trans woman named Lynn Conway, who's a very wealthy and influential uh, academic emeritus uh, at University of Michigan. <clears throat> and anyway, what people, what the, these trans women hated was the idea called autogynephilia, auto self, gyna, woman, philia, love of. This is uh, a phenomenon in which a male, a natal male, uh, when they uh, develop sexual feelings, they develop sexual arousal to uh, the activity of cross-dressing, put, typically putting on uh, women's lingerie that they might borrow from their, you know, uh, not, not uh, explicitly, but they might take their mothers or sisters' uh, bras and panties, look at themselves privately in a mirror and masturbate. It's a turn on. Uh, a subset of autogynophiles also uh, develop sexual interest in the idea of having a woman's body or being a woman. And um, <clears throat> we don't have time to get into all the evidence and so on, but uh, the Evidence suggests that any trans woman who is not exclusively attracted to men and who has not been um, very feminine from early childhood, which is kind of the stereotype, any trans woman who's not like that is motivated by autogynephilia. And that would include the ones who were mad at me. Uh, so, the, you were asking the question, do I think that that comes from biology, socialization? I, uh, I believe it comes from bio, biological uh, factors. I, I don't think there's any plausible explanation why a 14-year-old boy who's never had this demonstrated in front of him gets the idea hey i think i'd like to turn put on uh female undergarments and that that'll be a turn on uh so i think that autogynephilia is inborn uh i also think that the other uh kind of uh transsexualism which i would i think is mainly a a, a, a an extreme form of feminine male homosexuality. I think that's also inborn. 
Now, what what uh, is socially influences what one does with this, uh, and I think it's influenced by uh, societal notions like uh, you know what 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 is the right thing to do, uh, what what does it mean when you have these feelings? Well, people, the, the, so autogynophilic transsexuals, a lot of them are strongly motivated to believe that they are just like women. And, and they've even uh, tried to make the argument, some of them, that women also have these turn uh, autogynophilic feelings. Like when they put on uh, sexy underthings, they get sexually aroused. Uh, we have recently published a study uh, showing that that's not true, <laughs> at least uh, to the same in the same way. So uh, yeah, go ahead. You mentioned that that you believe that this is biological, um, and yet since the book, especially the visibility of trans identity in the United States has more or less exploded. Um, in the book, this is, of course, 20 years ago, you were saying that it's on par with about one in 20,000 people who we could classify as transsexual or transgendered. Um, and now I would expect that we would find um, that number to be much higher in terms of self-identification. And so there's a debate going on, as you know. Um, about the question of gender dysphoria as social contagion. Um, and this would, it may well be biological, uh, right, in, in its true manifestations, right? But um, I wonder, do you think that that uptick that we're seeing is not uh, a product of the loosening stigma on admitting to these feelings of autogynephilia or these uh, transgender sentiments, but is rather a product of certain social incentives um, to identify as such. Could you talk a little bit about that question of contagion? Okay, so for the kinds of males that I've been talking about. Again, there are two types. There's the type who's been very feminine boy. Uh, uh, now, importantly, when I wrote that book, the literature on uh, very feminine boys who wanted to be girls showed that most of them grew out of it by the time uh, they were uh, well into adolescence. In fact, by the time they reached adolescence. Most of them had grown out of it. Uh, and I think our culture has changed in ways that prevents them from growing out of it. You know, I think a lot of parents think they're being very progressive and cool by saying, oh, I have a trans child. Uh, let me help my child become a girl. <laughs> and if parents do that, you know, what, what's going to bring the, the boy back to boyhood? Uh, so, yeah, that's, and then I think a similar uh, but slightly different uh, uh, mechanism happens for uh, boys with autogynephilia that they, because uh, they don't tell their parents typically, hey, I, I have these feelings, but they find an online community, and uh, there is in this culture uh, this um, 
you know, it, it's cool to be trans and, uh, and it's, you know, I, I, I think that that is probably uh, happening. Uh, now, there is definitely for girls and possibly for boys a third kind of uh, gender dysphoria that we should talk about. Uh, and this has been called rapid onset gender dysphoria. And this did not used to exist. And um, the classic case would be a, a girl who never showed any signs of even being a tomboy, uh, who yet probably has had some signs of being, you know, not totally happy as a child and into adolescence. Uh, again, gets into some kind of peer group uh, and finds trans ideology and decides fairly suddenly that she's she might be transgender. Then that progresses to she is transgender. She wants to be a boy. And, uh, you know, again, that, that didn't used to exist. I so, think that that is entirely a social construction. That is not to say that these uh, youth would be just entirely healthy and normal <laughs> had that not happened because it, it seems to affect uh, uh, girls with pre-existing problems. And uh, there, there are some parents in these uh, concerned parent groups who keep uh, pushing me and some of the other uh, scientists. Like, I don't believe that all these boys are autogonophilic. Uh, maybe some of them also have something like rapid onset gender dysphoria. And that is possible, uh, but it's an empirical question. And, you know, again, uh, most autogonophilic youth, their parents know nothing because <laughs> they don't tell parents about, you know, their sexual fantasies and what they do in private. There are ways that we could... Uh, that, that empirical studies could be constructed to answer these questions about um, the extent to which this is a product of social forces, rapid onset gender dysphoria. I wonder, are, do you know of research that's being done of that sort, or is that just so radioactive that you, you just can't touch it? You, you Earlier in the podcast, you mentioned the study I'm doing with Lisa Lippman and Ken Zucker. That is that's one of the big kinds of questions that we're uh, intending to answer. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Um, one thing you, you mentioned, you know, uh, in this case where a young girl may say, I want to be a boy. Um, and I think that for many people who are not inhabitants of the university, university life or sort of elite um, corners of society, many people would just say, well, I'm sorry, you can't be a boy. You're not a boy. Um, and one of the things that interests me in the book is that you uh, 
do often seem to grant the authenticity of these identities. Um, you do, for example, um, use sort of the preferred pronouns of, of your subjects. Um, and uh, I am somebody who has, I've thought a good deal about sort of the pronoun craze and I have my own opinions about it, but I, I wonder about yours. Um, you know, uh, is this uh, just a matter of courtesy or is it just the case that trans women are women? Um, well, I, I, I think that they're different. There's something in the middle, a choice in the middle there. So first of all, the trans women that I wrote about uh, were much more committed <laughs> than uh, some of the people we think of as trans women these days. Uh, you know, uh, several of the ones that I wrote about actually got complete sex reassignment surgery, genital reassignment, uh, breast, and In so essence, on. In essence, they could pass. Many of these uh, people you were talking about. Some of about... them could pass very well. Okay. Uh, Although that is another uh, correlation that uh, autogynophiles uh, don't tend to like because they, I, I say in the book, they don't pass as well uh, as the other type. Um, so, uh, but I, you know, so I did experience uh, some of them as, as women, uh, but whether or not I did, I, I would have certainly referred to them with female pronouns. And I, I, I guess um, I do think it's the courteous thing to do. And I certainly didn't see in, in 2003 any uh, potential for harm uh, because back then it was quite the rare thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, these days, you know, we, uh, we all have the choice everywhere to put our pronouns forward, which I don't do. Uh, but, uh, gosh, you know, it's luckily you don't really, talking to people, you don't have to use pronouns very often other than you <laughs> and I try to be careful I, I don't think I would intentionally even if you told me to use she and her uh, I would try to remember to do that <laughs> yes uh, but uh, yeah it would well, be hard it seems to me that it's something increasingly you can't opt out of um, and I will tell a recent story registering for the main conference in my field um you know you have to put in your information for the name tag in advance of the conference and it had a place for pronouns um and uh it wouldn't allow me to move past that page until i selected something right and in principle i didn't want to select something so i clicked other and in the other box you can write something and i i wrote please use the pronouns that uh, are best accord your visual perception of me. I think right? that's perfect. Yeah. Look, at, look at me and see. Well, when I got to the conference to pick up my name tag, I was excited because I wanted it to say that. Instead, what it said was, ask me about my pronouns. Um, <laughs> and uh, I wasn't crazy about that, so I crossed out the my. So it just said, ask me about pronouns. <laughs> um, 
and right. uh but you know in, i think especially in academic culture this has become almost uh obligatory uh and, and it's crazy i mean um For a, a, a small proportion of people who have legitimate gender conflict, we are all supposed to announce our pronouns. It's, it's just crazy. Yes. And, you know, and even so if somebody wants to be called something uh, other than what I might be inclined to call them, just tell me. And I, you know, I, I, uh, I remember, uh, I'm a, I'm an amateur cyclist and, uh, one of the, um, mechanics at my bike store, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, uh, was a very masculine, I thought she was a very masculine female, but went by the name Jake, which should have been the clue. And I did in a three-way conversation, I said, she said this, and I could tell that Jake was offended. I felt really bad because I didn't, you know, I didn't want, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Um, but even then, Jake should have just said, Jake should expect <laughs> that people, until Jake gets a beard, uh should expect that people might make that mistake and, and have to live with it. And the, the idea that we have to, everybody declare pronouns to avoid things like that happening is silly. Mm -hmm. And uh, most people I know find it annoying. So my area of study, as you know, is rhetoric. And you, you hinted at this a, a little bit ago, but you know, 20 years ago, the proper terminology for this phenomenon would have been to call these people transsexuals. Um, and it seems now that this term has very much fallen out of style and, and now it's transgendered. Um, if you talk to very smart people 20 years ago, they would have explained to you that sex is a biological category and gender is a social category. Um, and now it seems very much that the very smart people, if you talk to today, will uh are not so confident that there's this clear dividing line between concepts of sex and gender could you talk a little bit about how or why we change the the terminology that we use in talking about this so, so in academia and and i think you will recognize this and probably be uh more familiar with it than i am uh there is a contingent of disciplines that spend a lot of time arguing about terminology and uh, having uh, and changing terminology. Uh, Steven Pinker has talked about the euphemism treadmill. Uh, but yeah, and then uh, others like me uh, feel like it's really important to what's important is to be very clear about how you're using words and then to stick with them uh, uh, so that people can understand each other across years and so on. And uh, I have uh, had arguments with uh, associate editors at, at uh, one of the journals I most publish in 
she was saying that I could not use the word homosexual because that that is uh, I, I offensive, uh, which is a ridiculous. Uh, idea and I, I pushed back and I used homosexual and I will continue to use homosexual uh, because it is descriptive and it's it's not uh, so the same people who say I can't use homosexual they're fine with people using the word queer <laughs> which right. when I was growing up queer was an insult right. uh, and you know I know lots of uh, uh, gay, gay men who uh, detest the that word being used and don't want it to be used to describe them. Mm. So uh, I I think that uh, there there's a contingent of people who use uh, language uh, uh, disputes as a way to assert their power and influence. Like uh, no, we're not saying that this week. We're you need to say it this way. And I, I just, I don't play those games. I had an editor uh, desk reject my article because I used the word dissociative. Not referencing mental illness at all, but they said uh, that stigmatizes mentally ill people because it's associated with some, some psychological conditions and you need to change that word, dissociative. Um, okay. <laughs> so... I thought we might move now to a, a little broader discussion of the discipline of psychology in, in general. Um, it seems to me that, that for many years, at least uh, the time that I've been in higher ed, the dominant assumption on the part of people in the natural sciences and the social sciences has been that what we now call wokeism is, um, you know, pretty well confined to the humanities. Uh, and um, now I think that we're starting to see some people in both the social sciences and the natural sciences wake up to the fact that they are, are not well uh, defended against the influence of this, this kind of thinking. I wonder, do, do you see it? Do you see the wokeification of psychology happening? Um, do you see it influencing the way that scientific principles are applied? Um, that sort of thing? I do see uh, alarming trends, and that includes both uh, things that are published that are asserting ideological, uh, poorly reasoned arguments, and I also uh, threats to suppress by not publishing. Uh, ideas that uh, might be offensive to uh, protected minorities or you know women are not a minority <laughs> but and women you know um, hmm. so I, I see that I, I, I would say for the most part uh, psychologists still uh, respect data and they still speak clearly uh, as opposed to, say, gender studies people that, who have their own, uh, you know, anybody who can understand Judith Butler, um, I, I would say they're fooling themselves that they, if they think that they can understand her. Uh, so, 
you know, I think that we're still holding on, but uh, the uh, I see all kinds of movement behind the scenes, like at journals and so on, to uh, put out statements about what they're about and how they want to promote social justice and how they want to, uh, uh, you know, oppose things that, uh, regardless of validity, things that they think might hurt uh, uh, favored groups. Uh, the, a journal called uh, Nature Human Behavior, which is um, from the Nature Group, and it's, uh, you know, I think a lot of psychologists have published there. It's a recent journal, but it's rapidly became pretty uh, influential uh, by impact factor and so on. But they recently put out a statement just like that uh, that got has gotten a lot of pushback, including by uh, heavy hitters like Steven Pinker, who said that he won't review for that journal or mm-hmm. cite it. Because, <laughs> you know, it, it's... Uh, it, the, you know... The fundamental problem in academia right now is uh, the abandonment of uh, the preeminence of knowledge seeking or, you know, being a scholar should be what all of us, it should be the ambition we all have first. Uh, and that is really falling by the wayside right now. And those statements uh, exemplify that. Mm-hmm. It's not easy to be a scholar. And, and sometimes I think uh, that the university system in the United States has gotten so large that we've got people in professorships who really don't have the ability to be a scholar in the traditional sense if they wanted to. And and what's left when when you get there is activism and and at least in my field that makes up a, a really large chunk of what gets done um the replication crisis uh i always am excited to talk to uh psychologists about this uh your field has been it's not the only field but it has been at the forefront of this discussion discussion of what we call the replication crisis that is published studies um, that uh, we had heretofore thought to be valid and reliable. Um, it turns out uh, cannot be reproduced. I wonder, um, from your perspective, what are the causes of this? Um, are, are there solutions that are evident, or is this a tempest in a teapot that uh, we really don't need to be that concerned about? You know, the, the replication crisis is a serious crisis. Uh, it's, it's actually unlike the crisis in academia that your podcast is mostly focused on. Uh, the replication crisis uh, is one I'm uh, quite optimistic about. Uh, so what caused the replication crisis, so maybe just step back and I'll just say a few words about what it is. and. Uh, I would say uh, it was around 
2010, 2011, 2012, uh, there was a big awareness simultaneous awareness uh, and psychology was probably the discipline where it started the awareness uh, of um, the fact that a lot of the findings including uh, well-known findings published in textbooks and so on uh, could not be uh, replicated they could not be repeated in exact studies and uh, it also, uh, another cause of the replication crisis in psychology was the publication uh, in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology by the psychologist Daryl Bem of a, uh, a, I think it was nine study article uh, purporting to show evidence for precognition, basically ESP. Uh, and people looked at that study and said, man, in eight out of nine of these studies, he got evidence for ESP. How did that happen? Uh, and I think the uh, editors uh, of JPSP said, well, he did it the same way everybody else did, why we should publish it. And he did it the same way a lot of other people did. Uh, the, to publish in uh, empirical journals, not just psychology, uh, one needs to get uh, statistically significant findings. You have to get a p-value. It used to be less than 0.05. Uh, but, uh, and what that means, and I, so I teach, uh, virtually all my teaching now is statistics, uh, and that's uh, in part due to uh, controversy that you haven't mentioned, maybe you don't know about it, which was my 2011 uh, uh, after-class demonstration in my human sexuality class, uh, in which I was uh, removed from teaching that class. I have uh, not heard this. Tell us uh, about it. Okay. Well, I will. I'll tell you okay. that. Remind me after right. the replication crisis. Uh, so uh, what a p-value 0.05 means is that if it were actually true that in the general population, there was no difference, let's say, between these two groups. Uh, I would get an effect, a difference between these two groups, two samples as different as I got, uh, less than one out of 20 times, five out of 100 times. If, so if that's, that's statistically significant. Is it fair to say that the, the p-value of 0.05 is something like saying we're we have a 95% level of confidence in this? Uh, no, it's not correct. Okay. However, that is how everybody was thinking about it. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, and they were thinking about it wrong. Uh, and uh, so basically, uh, in order to get things published, you have to find these significant findings and uh, Every, all scientists want to publish. They want to publish in the best journals. And it turns out that there are things that you can do to get that p-value down to below 0.05. And uh, for the most part, this was not uh, people consciously saying, 
I am going to cheat. Because uh, if they were going to cheat, just go ahead and make up data. <laughs> they were actually using the data they had, but there are things that you can do like uh, remove certain observations, say they're outliers. Or you can collect uh, several different dependent variables and choose the ones that turn out. Uh, and there are other ways as well. Uh, but what we realized is how often people were doing that. It also turns out a p-value of 0.05 is not nearly conservative enough. You want to use smaller p-values. Uh, so what would you say is a, is a, is a strong, good p-value? <laughs> well, personally, um, so I, I work in research where we tend to get large effects. With, which have very small p-values. So uh, I don't really want to waste my time unless uh, p-value is around uh, 0.001. Wow. Say. Uh, you know, I, I might say, well, there's a p-value 0.01. Maybe, maybe, but, you know, I'm not very confident about that. But uh, so psychology had has had... Uh, over a decade of reckoning with this. And I will say that uh, we have been, uh, we, ha we have had the, the leaders of this uh, movement to promote replication. A guy named Brian Nozick from University of Virginia has been one, but there have been lots. Uh, and they've made uh, good progress. Uh, promoting best practices and so on. And I'm much more confident that in uh, findings published these days. And, you know, one thing I would say is just the whole smell test of a finding, you know, ESP, no, that doesn't smell good. Uh, <laughs> I don't believe it. Uh, uh, and there are, there are other famous examples. Uh, but, you know, back to, so the two crises uh, in science are the replication crisis and the Luniversity crisis. And uh, there's not really any correlation between being concerned about replication and being concerned about the preeminence of scholarship and knowledge, uh, unfortunately. Hmm. Uh, and uh, so I am I'm very optimistic about uh, the replication crisis, and I'm uh, not very optimistic currently about uh, the other. So this is a good uh, transition then to the other, and it sounds like your experience in your human sexuality class may um, get us down that road. So <laughs> so why don't you tell us about that? Well, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't think it does really, although it may have uh, some relevance, but just really quickly. So I used to teach uh, the largest class at Northwestern University, which is a private school. I probably U of H has a bunch of large classes, but this class topped out at around 600 students. Uh, I teach it every winter. And uh, part of what students liked was that I would hold um, optional 
after class events uh, with uh, speakers, uh, special speakers. And so I would, uh, back when I was friends with the transsexuals, they would come to class, you know, a dominatrix, uh, had a lawyer talk about recovered memories, a bunch of stuff. Uh, so one of these in, in uh, the winter of 2011, uh, I had uh, some people, I think that they, they uh, were billed themselves as Kiki people. And uh, I was lecturing when they showed up uh, you know, because they were going to come after class. And I was talking about uh, some uh, Kinsey's, no, I was talking about the phenomenon of female ejaculation, mm. which I said, we don't really understand it. We it, it, uh, People are skeptical that it even exists. And they heard me say that. And uh, when I was done, they, you know, we broke for five minutes so that students could leave if they wanted to. Coming up, they they said, um, the, the leader said, you know, uh, she, a woman there, she uh, does female ejaculation. We would like to demonstrate that uh, on stage. Is that okay? And I had been reading uh, a book, uh, it's a good book, uh, called Bonk. I forget uh, the author. She's a popular science writer. But it's about uh, all the controversy about sex research. And and I had been f feeling like, you know, this is stupid that we have all of these uh, inhibitions and, and so on. So I did not enthusiastically say yes. I, I said, uh, okay, uh, yeah. And then I warned the class and uh, was very uncomfortable. And uh, I didn't watch, but was told that she did not uh, uh, do the thing uh, uh, despite the attempt. Uh, and and I was the the bad part is that for me was that the uh, editor of the student newspaper was taking the class and uh, so this this became uh, not just a national and international news story. I had uh, friends from the Czech Republic uh, email me and and. <laughs> Uh, I think the New York Times did a, a little article on it. You know, this was, uh, so this was a big uh, controversy. And at, the, at that time, you know, it was more um, socially conservative uh, parents uh, and, and, uh, and, and uh, reporters and so on who were, outraged there's only one place in american life where a story like this could occur and it's yeah. the university yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah. so um, the, the the dean uh decided uh that we wouldn't be offering that class the next year and and 
have never it's never been offered again and it's a shame because it was a good class yeah uh but i i'll tell you uh i'm not sure i would enjoy teaching it anymore oh, uh, yeah. because of the it's changes a it's a minefield yeah and and i'll also say that the 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 conservative um critics and, and i got a lot of email angry email and so on i uh, i found them less unpleasant <laughs> than than uh what i would anticipate from uh progressive uh critics and what i've received from some of some of my other stuff so i i am currently more uh considered to be uh an enemy of the uh left uh, than an enemy of the right. I am neither. Uh, I am somebody who... Uh, so I, I, I think that uh, that was a mistake that I made, but it, it was... Uh, I wasn't trying to indoctrinate anybody, or I don't think anybody was harmed. Uh, uh, the students uh, actually, in the controversy that followed, students were extremely supportive of me. Uh, put together a pro... Bailey petition and so on. Uh, I think that uh, that that, yeah. that situation would unfold much differently in 2021. Um, so the, the the woke university in general. You've been in higher ed since I think you said you were a, an undergraduate in the late 70s. Um, so you have been around 40 years, anyways, like uh, in inside campus life. Um, how did this happen? How did we get here? So, um, I, quick answer, I don't know. Uh, I, I actually uh, had lunch with uh, uh, an ex-colleague. He moved to a different university and uh, we agreed that it it happened so suddenly. It seemed to happen so suddenly. Couldn't have probably happened that suddenly. There were probably all kinds of things that were uh, happening behind the scenes that people were not aware aware of. But but the crazy part that we hate that has only begun fairly recently. When did you? When would you say you saw it first? Like at, at what time? If you were going to pinpoint a year where you're just like, oh wow, you know. Well, I, so let's say uh, while I was still teaching my human sexuality class, which was always uh, very highly rated, and uh, people were really trying to get into it, but in the last few years, let's say. Uh, 2009, 10, 11, I started to get some very critical ideological reviews. I mean, and, and people saying that I was a bad person and so on that I think, uh, and because of my ideas. Uh, and I, I suspect those were people from gender studies, uh, which was becoming uh, a more uh, popular uh, major during that time. So I noticed that. I also noticed uh, among 
some other academics um, and and everybody, I guess. But the, the Trayvon Martin, Martin case, which was, I think, uh, 2012, and, uh, and the uh, Ferguson, uh, uh, which, what was that, 2014? Something uh, like that. Yeah, uh, I noticed just crazy amount of assertions about uh, the narrative uh, that to question it, which I did. Uh, I mean, basically, can we just wait and see what? <laughs> uh, Let's get some facts. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and when we did, you know, the, those narratives were, you know, not correct. Uh, but I, I just, the certainty so basically that that was when i i noticed this uh, insistent idea of uh st systemic police racism and uh which has become uh very influential you know the the and then uh the summer of 2020 uh after george floyd that's that's when uh things went full-on crazy the mask came off at that point yeah. institutionally. Yeah, that's right. Can we do anything or is it lost? Um, so I don't know. Uh, I, I, I think that by saying it's lost, if we were to, if, if we were to say it's lost that that would um, surrender the ship and uh, that so I don't want to do that you know just as I don't think most of us anticipated what happened I think that we shouldn't be expected to know how we're going to get out of this either uh, but you know I, I think that uh, the first thing that we should keep in mind is that there are a lot of people who don't like this. Um, the solution that maybe, no, that's the wrong word, the goal. Not, this is not the solution. This is the goal, is to return to being scholars uh, and to that that should be everybody's goal and anything else should be subsidiary to that and if it's in conflict then you can't do it uh and in my in so i don't know rhetoric is must be somewhat different you know i i am psychology really is a science uh and to be a scholar in psychology needs to be uh, related to the production of uh, knowledge and, and uh, you know, to the best of our ability. Furthermore, uh, we should be diving into the most controversial topics. We should be studying. So I'm an expert <laughs> on transgenderism, transsexualism, whatever you want to call it. That's one of the big issues of the day. <laughs> yeah. I'm here. Hey people, let's let's talk. Uh, university presidents, let's let's talk. Let's argue. Let's debate. Uh, 
uh, race should be not a minefield. It should be, we have big problems uh, concerning race and, you know, racial disparities are a problem that we haven't been able to solve and just blaming racism uh, in the context of serious affirmative action doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, let's, let's talk about the causes of racial disparities and, and possible solutions. And, you know, we, the academic uh, woke and, and their and administrators have increased racial, the, the, the most damaging racial disparities uh, in our uh, inner cities, the murder rate of uh, young black men has increased by the, the biggest increases in recorded history. Chicago is uh, having a bad year. Yeah, terrible. And and who's to blame for that? It's not the police. Uh, it's people who have caused the police to have to back off. Yep. And that includes, you know, university presidents who put out statements blaming the police. Well, this is why I think that, you know, like your call for a return to scholarship and, and truth seeking is, is I'm 100% on board with that. But I also know that virtually every professor in many fields who are younger than I am, right, they can't teach that to their graduate students, to the people who will inherit the university because they don't know it. But even if they did, they wouldn't want it, right? Because they have a telos, a, a goal that they've decided upon, right? And the, the truth will, will be subordinated to the pursuit of that goal and they will teach their graduate students that this is this is how it should be you know um either either teach them that explicitly or through signaling it by the way that they inhabit the field or whatever field that might be um and i think the question at this point for me is really just uh whether or not it's lost and i understand that it's unpalatable palatable to think maybe it is but it's an important question to me because the next question then would be, well, do we start forming alternative institutions? You know, because that if it's savable, then then let's stay with it. If if it's not, then let's not spend another second, you know, on on a, on a sinking ship. Um, and so that's uh, what, what's your feeling of, of alternative institutions of, of sort of just a. a the possibility of a fundamental reimagining of, of higher education. Yeah, I, I honestly, I think it's a pipe dream, and you know, I'm I'm a, a fan of Barry Weiss and and all the people. Uh, not all, not all, because uh, Deidre McCloskey, uh, on the faculty there, w tried to, was one of those trying to get me fired. From uh, for my book, but um, I'm but mo most of the rest of them, I'm I'm fans of. But uh, I I don't, you know, <laughs> who's that going to help? University of Austin. They seem to be envisioning, you know, a version of St. John's University uh, in Austin, uh, which 
uh, and you know maybe not four year maybe for older students too but I'm sure that's going to be really helpful to people who get to go there but uh, it's not gonna uh, <laughs> it's not gonna happen in time and it's not going to be big enough I also don't have faith in it I think that the problem there is it's not just a matter of well get professors who are open to truth seeking the, the problem is that they've left all of the rest of the structuring of higher ed exactly in place right so they've just almost it seems like well if we get a personnel change that's going to solve it and it's not yeah and i right i i and i yeah so um i i think it is a matter of incentives uh and incentives have to change uh and probably a lot of that has to happen from without rather than within. Uh, I'm sure you know you're aware, for example, of uh, the lawsuit uh, uh, against Texas A&M that just was filed. Um, I, I'm sorry, who remind me? I, I know this guy. Do you know who I'm talking about? No, not off the top of my head, I don't. Ah, okay. I think he's uh, filing a lawsuit based on um, racial discrimination. Uh, uh, um, so there's a lot of uh, things that can happen uh, if if uh, people can get their act together uh, and uh, elect people who will do this and and also uh, have the right kinds of uh, goals which again it, it's scholarship it's I don't think it's uh, replacing one dogma with another and that's what I worry about um, also you know don't don't forget uh, those of us like you and me who are still in the university who are trying to do good things and um, you know the University of uh, Austin I, I believe that I've heard that they've gotten a hundred and fifty million dollars wow. of donations uh, and uh, you know this big study that I'm conducting with uh, Ken Zucker and Lisa Lippman, we got barely enough to get that started. Uh, and uh, we, you know, it's what a lot of people want to know. Uh, help us be scholars for good. We definitely need some patrons. We need some people who are, who, who see the problem and have money to direct We, we do, and, and we, we need, and we, we need probably to be a little more organized about, uh, what to ask for, you know, there, there's a lot of movement to Substack, including by a lot of people I respect quite a bit, uh, who've uh, had to leave the academy. So Bo Weingard, I think, is a really smart and decent guy who was fired because he was uh, writing about the issue that you can't write about, which is uh, uh, the role of uh, 
cognitive differences and racial disparities and the possibility of genetic causes and uh, uh, shouldn't have been fired. Uh, but <clears throat> yeah, he's uh, got a substack. I don't know how well he's doing. Uh, Seems to be there. doing pretty well to me. Well, good, good. Yeah, he's, he continues to write good things uh, on a broad array of issues. Uh, there, yeah, but, uh, and then uh, there's uh, Amy Wax, who, I'm not going to take a position right here about uh, the validity of uh, the things that she's been saying. I will say, however, that there's no way in the world that she should lose her tenure over those things. Her tenure should be protected, and uh, she is... Um, under serious threat, and she has a GoFundMe, and or and she has another uh, alternative source of uh, you can Google how to donate, and uh, and I donated, uh, and again it's because uh, tenure is important and and under threat. Uh, I also donated to uh, Charles Negi, uh, uh, who won his case. Uh, but it would be good if we didn't wait till we were at threat to of losing our tenure. It would be good if we had uh, particular things rather than starting a new university that we could ask for money for. Uh, and and I think there are, you know, I, I've been um, I've been very. Uh, unhappy, depressed about this, seeking mutual social support by other academics. And I've been um, kind of disheartened by how few academics have been interested in any kind of organizing. However, there are some, and uh, it's been difficult to get any resources to do anything <laughs> for the groups uh, who, you know, to bring in a speaker or, you know, we're not getting any money from our universities uh, to bring in anybody uh, or uh, to start a website. You know, I'm, I've been, uh, I should, I should, another project that I want to announce uh, before we're done, and I, I have no time constraints, but you probably do. Uh, I am a, uh, on the board of something called uh, Society for Open Inquiry in the Behavioral Sciences uh, with people like uh, Lee Jessam, uh, Richard Redding, who is, is our founding president, uh, Corey Clark, some other really good people. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're intending to start a, a journal to publish uh, difficult research and, uh, and so on. But fantastic uh, i know that uh lee jessam is is also involved with researchers one which which hosts uh my new journal the peerless review mike you've been kind of a dose of optimism you might not feel like you <laughs> you have you might not feel like you have been but you are somewhat more optimistic than most of the people i've talked to about uh these things and given that the lawnmowers have now started in earnest across the street, I think it might be a good place to end our conversation. Um, but I want to thank you again for the work that you're doing and for um, 
just the, the the intellectual honesty that that I've seen in your work, um, and also your willingness to, you know, uh, call a spade a spade in terms of what's going on in in higher ed. So thanks for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Uh, mine too, uh, Adam. And uh, thanks for the effort in putting putting together this podcast. It's been a source of uh, enjoyment and uh, sustenance for me. So well, thank thanks. you. We'll have you on again sometime. Okay. Uh, Professor Michael Bailey, Northwestern University.